Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where over this week, we're having a lot of big stories breaking. The temperature just started rising in the John Durham investigation. We're seeing some signs of uh, activity aimed at perhaps bringing a prosecution or a plea deal or an indictment in the next few months. Uh, And in Great Britain, there was a major development. Christopher Steele lost a lawsuit to some Russian businessmen whose names were besmirched wrongly, inaccurately, it turns out, by the Steele dossier. Uh, But there's a more important turn and twist to that case. There's evidence that has emerged in that British case that almost directly will affect the John Durham investigation. We're going to talk about that. We've got a couple of new polls out that are measuring American sentiments. They probably are a good explanation for why President Trump has doubled down on ending violence and protests and statue desecration. The reason is America doesn't like that activity. It doesn't consider it a legitimate form of protest. It considers it violence. We've got the latest on those polls, plus uh, an even more shocking development about what people think about the potential for a violent overthrow of the U.S. government in the next decade. That poll got a lot of attention as well. Uh, And we've got a blockbuster interview. Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest of the great state of North Carolina is here. He's a Republican. He's running to become the chief executive of North Carolina, unseat the Democrat who currently holds the governorship there, Roy Cooper. And he's done something pretty interesting. He sued his boss. Yes, he filed a lawsuit in the last couple of days against the sitting governor saying that his the governor's COVID-19 restrictions, which, by the way, played a role in the Republicans and Donald Trump's decision to move their convention, part of it, out of Charlotte, North Carolina next month. Well, he claims that the COVID restrictions that have been put in place by the governor are unconstitutional, didn't follow the law, and he's suing his boss, the man he's running against. This is a great interview. You're going to want to hear about that. He's also going to talk about President Trump and Republicans' opportunities in the election in November and what's going on there. Lots of big developments to cover. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Please remember, support our great sponsors and advertisers. They make this podcast. They make the exclusive reporting at Just the News possible. We'll be back right after this commercial break. Hey, folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking, I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. We've got a lot to cover before we get to this great interview with Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest of North Carolina. We know North Carolina is going to be a big battleground 
one of the most important states in play in the fall. President Trump or former Vice President Joe Biden are both working hard to try to capture that state. And there's a big governor's race there as well. Uh, the state, which is typically red, uh, has had a Democratic governor the last four years. Pretty popular guy, Roy Cooper. But uh, Cooper's been in some controversy lately. We're going to talk to Dan uh, Forrest about that. In fact, we're going to ask Dan Forrest why he sued his boss. He actually filed a lawsuit against his boss just before the 4th of July. A lot of great conversation to be had with Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, a rising star in the Republican Party, and locked in one of the big races coming up in November of this year. All right, speaking of November, uh, my colleague, Carrie Sheffield, who does great reporting every day out of the White House, uh, she has a new story out that takes a look at a dynamic that might uh, surprise those who have been reading what's in the mainstream media only. And that's because if you read the mainstream media, you would think that the November election was dead and over with. Joe Biden's already going to be president. Mail it in. Forget about Donald Trump. Well, we heard that once before, I think back in August 2016. Well, uh, Kerry did something really interesting. Uh, it's not the most perfect measure for prediction, but she went back and took a look at how did President Trump do while running unopposed, meaning there was no reason to really go in the primaries and vote for President Trump because he was going to get the nomination anyways. Uh, but how did he do compared to Joe Biden? And, he, and she found something pretty remarkable. Even though President Trump didn't have a, uh, a contested primary, he didn't have any real challengers for the race, President Trump drew more votes in some of these really important states like Ohio and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin than Joe Biden did, even though Joe Biden was in a hot race and that was the big Democratic race of uh, the spring. This is an interesting dynamic to look at. What it suggests is there's a fairly large voter enthusiasm gap between Trump voters who were willing to go out to the primaries and vote for President Trump just symbolically because he was going to win no matter what, and those who... Uh, perhaps held their nose or been reluctant, but got behind Joe Biden because he was the best of the remaining options. So let's take a look at some numbers that she comes up with. In Pennsylvania, Trump got 934,524 votes, according to the Secretary of State. Joe Biden got only 914,904 votes. So uh, that's an interesting bellwether. In Ohio, uh, Biden got 623, 186 votes, and Donald Trump got 682,843. And let's go to Wisconsin, where I was just a few days ago uh, visiting some family. Uh, Biden got 581,611 votes. Donald Trump got 616,705 votes. That, those are some really, really important dynamics to watch because... If there's no reason to come out for Trump and you vote for him anyways because the primaries were a foregone conclusion for him, it means that the Trump voters are mo in some of these states may be more highly motivated than the Joe Biden voters who you know had to pick between Biden and Bernie Sanders, which was by many Democrats' descriptions, an imperfect choice to have to make. But uh, Kerry's done a good job. I encourage you to go to justthenews.com and take a look at this story. She's put all the numbers together, so there's some other ones that I didn't touch here, but uh, what's interesting is that if you look overall, uh, Donald Trump outperformed Barack Obama, the last incumbent running for re-election. Uh, compared to Obama's 2012 uh, performance, uh, Donald Trump did better. That's a pretty good apples-to-apples -apples comparison because both were uncontested and seeking a second term at the time. So there's, there's an interesting uh, dynamic to watch here. Right? Kerry really does a good job of laying this out. Uh, and... Um, in trying to make sense of why this may be a bellwether to watch as we head into the fall. 
Now, when I was in Wisconsin, uh, I heard from lots of people just on the street, family members, friends that I was with, a significant dissatisfaction with the uh, protesting and rioting that has gone on in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. Uh, almost everyone I talked to thinks that what happened to George Floyd was a tragedy, an unnecessary police killing. I think we're all in agreement on that. But uh, the that evolving into something that involves graffiti and destruction of property and looting and trespassing and statue vandalism, all the insanity that we've seen the last few weeks, even taking down Frederick Douglass's statue, one of the great leaders uh, uh, and fighters for racial justice in the world, in America, as of course. Um, so we did a poll at Just the News with my good friend, Scott Rasmussen. And here's what we found out. A majority of Americans believe that graffiti, monument vandalism, destroying private property, looting, they're not acts of protest. They are acts of violence. They're acts of crime. This was a pretty overwhelming finding. It didn't matter based on party or age or ideology. It appeared that across almost all uh, sectors, people really view the facing of statues, the throwing of uh, rocks at police officers, the trespassing on private property, destroying stores and private property, you know, looting, uh, all of that they viewed as uh, not a protest, but rather a criminal violent act. I think that's a pretty interesting sentiment. It probably explains why President Trump has uh, taken the position he has in cracking down on violence in these cities. In fact, yesterday, Attorney General Barr uh, launched a new operation to help cities uh, that are undergoing violent waves of crime, historic increases in violence in the last couple of months this summer, particularly. Uh, the first city that's going to feel the impact of this new federal operation is Kansas City out in Missouri. Uh, there's been a lot of violence here, one of the worst summers they've had ever. And um, uh, Attorney General Barr is sending in the federal government to assist local police to try to slow down this violence, to try to restore safety and um, calm and uh, the end of killings in these terrible, terrible uh, plague cities. I wonder if Chicago, where we saw 105 shootings a couple weekends ago, whether Chicago may be next. They certainly have had a scourge of over a decade of unbelievable violence and have not, at least at the local level, been able to get it under control, maybe the federal government can come in and do something. Let's keep an eye on that. Now, what's really interesting that I wanted to point out is that there we did a poll um, that uh, asked people, given all you've seen the last few years, is it likely that there'll be a, a violent attempt to overthrow the U.S. government in the next decade? And I'm shocked by the results. Nearly, actually 50%, exactly half of Americans said it was at least somewhat likely that we, there might be a violent attempt to overthrow the U.S. government. And 18% thought it was very likely. And it was pretty consistent. Republicans were a little bit more likely to believe uh, the possibility of a violent overthrow attempt in the next decade. But across independents, Democrats, uh, there was a general... Uh, concern. I think this is a second bellwether that Americans do not like what they've seen in the streets of America, this violence, this anarchy, this disrespect for law, this movement for defunding uh, police. Uh, this poll with Scott Rasmussen and Just the, Just the News really gets at uh, an issue that hasn't been measured before and I think could become a big predominant issue in the fall election. Americans want stability. Americans want peace. Americans want progress. They don't want looting, violence, 
murdering, all the things that we've seen go on in our cities the last many weeks, uh, many of them stoked by liberal anarchists that are at the center of all of this chaos. Um, Attorney General Barr, President Trump, been uh, tightening up uh, the screws on this, and uh, we're beginning to see some cities snap back into regular order. We'll watch what happens in Kansas City. As I mentioned, I think that could be a very important development. Now, finally, I want to get to uh, what I think is the biggest development in a while in the Durham investigation. So as I've been saying on television and radio for about two, three months now, I've begun to see some signs that the Justice Department is building some criminal cases. That doesn't mean anything will happen, but they're taking the sort of steps that you would expect to see if there was going to be an indictment or a plea deal in the Russia case. It looks like uh, the possibility of building a conspiracy case, a conspiracy to defraud the FISA court, uh, maybe one of the targets or one of the things that they're looking at. But what I'm interested in uh, is where new evidence continues to emerge that we didn't know about. And yesterday, there was a pretty important ruling in London. A British judge ruled that Christopher Steele violated the country's data privacy law by failing to check the accuracy of some of the information he put in his infamous dossier. Uh, and as a result, it was inaccurate, false information, information that could have been disproven before it was distributed to the FBI. And so the judge ruled that Christopher Steele's firm, Orbis Business Intelligence, should pay two Russian businessmen about 18,000 pounds each, about 22 grand each. Not a big monetary settlement, but more importantly, it is a further uh, validation that the Steele dossier was anything but credible, anything but accurate, anything but worthy of being used to support a FISA warrant. In this ruling, the judge identified, he takes just one memo. It's called Memo 112. That was one of several, uh, you know, maybe about 16 or 17 memos, if I remember correctly, that make up the total uh, document that we now call the Steele dossier that was given to the FBI, obviously leaked to the media, uh, given to some other people like at the State Department and... and um, uh, private citizens, and I, uh, we also learned from the case, was given to some British authorities. And the judge went through this one memo, which is, again, one of many memos that make up the dossier, and he found five specific statements, five allegations, five pieces of alleged intelligence from Christopher Steele that were wrong in just one memo written on one day. I think that's a pretty bad track record, and it raises the question, if a judge in Great Britain could quickly find flaws in the dossier. Why didn't the FBI, with all of its vast resources, do more, more quickly, to figure out that the Steele dossier was what it was? Russian disinformation, uncorroborated, and in some cases, blatantly inaccurate information. Uh, I think that it's a very important um, outside arbiter, when a, a British judge looks at this and says, hey, this guy that the FBI relied on got five things wrong in a single memo. He besmirched the reputation of these Russian businessmen by taking information from sources that wasn't accurate and in some cases wasn't aggressively checked. I think one of the most important um, comments that the, the court made um, uh, is that the uh, some of the allegations that he was putting in this dossier that besmirched the reputation of these Russian businessmen, quote, clearly called for closer attention, a more inquiring approach and a more energetic checking. Now, that's the judge criticizing Christopher Steele, but he might as well have just applied that to the FBI because the FBI, likewise, didn't do that aggressive check before they began using evidence from the dossier 
to get a FISA warrant against Carter Page and targeting the Trump campaign in the fall of 16. Uh, I want to mention one other thing, that I, two other things that actually come out of this case, because I think they're relevant to what uh, John Durham should be and probably is and what my reporting indicates he is investigating. And that is, did the FBI know that Hillary Clinton was the ultimate client, uh, the ultimate beneficiary of the Steele project, and that this really was an election project, something that they, they glossed over and didn't tell the court. We know the four FISA applications did not divulge that Hillary Clinton or the DNC were the ultimate client. But in this ruling, uh, the uh, judge, Mark Warby, Justice Mark Warby, was pretty clear. What he says is he found a memo, a set of notes, that Christopher Steele wrote after his very first interaction with the FBI in the dossier. This is on July 5th, 2016. Uh, Steele reaches out to a handler in the FBI in London. They have a significant debriefing. And it turns out uh, Christopher Steele took notes of what he told the FBI that day. And I want to um, read uh, what we learned about the, the notes because it's very important to see that the judge, after reading him, said flatly, it is pretty clear that the notes show the FBI were told that Christopher Steele's ultimate client, that's a quote, was the Clinton presidential campaign. Um, that's in the notes that Christopher Steele, that means he, right from the get-go, from the very first time that he talked to the FBI, he let them know that, that he thought he was working for Hillary Clinton or for the benefit of the Clinton. And what the... Um, the judge says is it really doesn't matter what evidence there is of exactly who was the ultimate client. I have enough to find that Perkins Cooley, that's the DNC Clinton law firm that hired Fusion GPS, who then hired Christopher Steele, that uh, they were instructed by one or more people or organizations within the upper echelons of the Democratic Party concerned to ensure Hillary Clinton's election as president. A British judge looked at this and came to the conclusion pretty quickly the Steele dossier was more about helping ensure Hillary Clinton's election as president than it was to be a legal or a law enforcement or an intelligence document. Uh, these are important revelations that, uh, that I think further go to the evidence that John Durham has sitting in front of him. It is now overwhelmingly clear the FBI knowingly and willfully misled the FISA court. They knew that Hillary Clinton was the ultimate client. They didn't tell the court that. They knew there were errors, flaws, and inaccuracies in the Steele information, including the specific Steele information that they presented to the court. They never told the court that. In fact, they said the information in the dossier was verified and that they had no derogatory information on Christopher Steele. We know that's not true. In fact, we knew they were specifically warned some of the most important information to the FISA warrant turned out to have been delivered by Russian intelligence sources and likely was part of a Russian disinformation campaign that began the moment that Christopher Steele started talking to the FBI because the CIA told the FBI the Russian intelligence services knew Chris Steele was working on this election project right in January 2016, right at the time he had that interaction with the FBI we talked about. So in Great Britain, there is new evidence, and I think it is directly directly relevant to what John Durham is looking at. If you need any further proof, there is now overwhelming evidence that the FBI knowingly and willfully engaged in a conspiracy to hide from the court, and I think possibly Congress, uh, the true flaws in their case.
the true uh, disinformation in Christopher Steele's dossier. Uh, even the Brits see it. They figured out Hillary Clinton was behind it and that it was, in most cases, unverified, inaccurate, false information. The time now is when will American authorities make the determination that those who carried out those false statements, those misleading statements, the charade on the FISA court, when will they finally face justice, face consequences beyond just being terminated? So uh, we'll be back after the commercial break to uh, have a great interview with Dan Forrest. You're going to want to hear this lieutenant governor of North Carolina. He has a lot to talk about the elections and why he sued his boss, the governor of North Carolina. We've heard a lot about that governor, Roy Cooper, thanks to President Trump, who's been in a fight with him over the Republican National Convention in Charlotte. Uh, But before we go to commercial break, I want to tell you about something very special to me. Next Tuesday, uh, my new book, Fallout, comes out. It is a, a story about nuclear bribes and Russian spies and Washington lies that helped enrich the Biden and Clinton dynasties. And it tells a 10-year story of how the Obama-Biden-Clinton reset effort with Russia, an effort to reboot our relations with Vladimir Putin, turned into a disaster that needed to be covered up. And part of that cover-up involved creating the false Russian narrative, the collusion narrative against Donald Trump, and ultimately... Uh, the Ukraine uh, scandal, the impeachment scandal that ultimately resulted in the president being acquitted. But uh, the book lays out in great deal a lot of big revelations. But I want to do something special for folks at Just the News who've been such great supporters, such great readers, such great consumers of the Russia-exclusive reporting we do here. Um, we, we have an autographed copy of the book for you. And you'll be able to attend a VIP exclusive exclusive session. We're going to have these little small discussion groups over the next three weeks. Uh, If you buy a copy of the book from jtnshop.com, that's all you got to go, jtnshop.com. Go there today. We have a special offer. You get a book. It's autographed by me. But more importantly, you get an opportunity to sit with like-minded readers at Just the News and ask me questions in a Zoom session. Uh, We're going to do three or four of these. I'm going to try to bring in some of my colleagues. Seamus Bruner, my co-author, will be one of them. I'm going to try to reach out to some other experts who help break news on the Russia case like myself. And we'll answer your questions. If you got a question about Christopher Steele, if you got a question about what is John Durham up to, what is the special prosecutor Jeff Jensen doing on Mike Flynn, will Mike Flynn ever be vindicated? Um, What about the Biden scandals in China and Ukraine? My book covers all of that with Seamus. Uh, you'll get a chance to ask us all the questions you've been dying to ask. All the You probably have better ideas than I haven't even thought of. And I'd like to hear from you, engage in these conversations, have a, some time to get to know each other, get to go over the book. This is a special offer. We're only giving it to just the news readers. If you go to jtnshop.com, scroll down, find the book Fallout, there's a special offer where you can buy the book, get an autograph, but more importantly, Sign up to join one of these sessions where you can talk one-on-one with me and Seamus and other experts on the Russia-Ukraine-Joe Biden scandals. And we'll answer your questions for however long it takes and and try to get people the sort of answers uh, that they've been demanding, certainly from our government, for a long time. So one more time, jtnshop.com. That's our store. A lot of great things there. Scroll down. Go to the Fallout book offer. Sign up today. You can join one of these private sessions in the next few weeks, and we'll we'll talk to together and answer questions and brainstorm about what will ultimately happen, what will be the ultimate fallout of the investigation of the investigators. All right, we're going to commercial break. When we come back, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest of North Carolina joins us 
You're not going to want to miss this one. It's a fun and insightful interview with a lot of insights into what's going to happen in the election in North Carolina this fall. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest indeed, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest of the great state of North Carolina, currently running to be the next governor of his state, joins us on the show. Lieutenant Governor, welcome. John, it's uh, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, it is our pleasure, and we really appreciate the time. We know you're very busy because you're running for office and you're actually suing your governor, your immediate boss. Uh, so there's lots to talk about in the um, in the news today. So first off, why don't you, uh, for those of our listeners outside of North Carolina that don't know a little bit about you, why, why don't you just describe a little bit about your background? You've got a great background in politics and public service, and I, I wonder if you could just tell tell them a little bit about what you've been doing. Well, you know, interestingly enough, John, I, I took a pretty unconventional route to get to lieutenant governor. Uh, I was an architect. <laughs> I practiced architecture for 22 years and I loved it. I was a partner in the largest firm in the state. I loved everything about my job. And then I felt called to step into a public service and, and run for lieutenant governor. And uh, I kind of left everything behind I, you know, for a period of a couple of years there while I was running. I had no salary, no benefits, no nothing, left it all on the table ran for lieutenant governor, and we won. So I've been serving now as lieutenant governor for uh, seven and a half years. Uh, we have, I guess, six months left in, in my second term here and uh, running for governor. So uh, obviously, uh, as a lot of people out there would know, this is one of the uh, battleground states in America. It's uh, what people would call a purple state. It's certainly a path to the White House for the president, the number one governor's race in the country. Uh, some would say the number one Senate race in the country. And uh, right. boy, all eyes are focused on North Carolina right now. They are indeed. And I'm sure in the fall, all television ads will be focused on North Carolina, too. It's going <laughs> to be a busy, right. <laughs> a busy fall. Um, now, you've, you've served for both a Republican governor and now the Democratic governor, uh, Roy Cooper. Describe the, the difference when you go from an all-Republican administration to, in the case of North Carolina, a split administration where you have a Republican as lieutenant governor and yourself and then a, a Democrat uh, as uh, the governor. Uh, how does the dynamic change a little bit for those of us who, who don't have that sort of system in their state? Uh, yeah, well, it, uh, it definitely provides some unique conversations for sure. In North Carolina, the two offices are completely unrelated. Uh, they ro obviously run separately uh, as statewide constitutional officers, but there's no connection. I have my own agency. The governor has his own agency, and we're just not connected in any way. So obviously, under a Republican governor, you meet with the Republican governor more often. You're talking about the, the things you want to get done for the state. Under the Democrat governor, you're kind of going it alone. Uh, but we have a Republican General Assembly. So I work very right. closely with our House and our Senate. Uh, we push lots of legislation through those guys. We get a lot done as lieutenant governor. And as you well know, we now obviously have uh, the executive branch in D.C. So we get a lot done with the White House, too. 
So it, it's uh, it's different. We when we had a Republican governor, we had a Democrat president, and we didn't get much done with DC. We're actually getting a lot done. Uh, you are, in fact, some of it's in the courts, as I read. Uh, it was uh, just maybe a little more than a week ago that you uh, you filed a lawsuit against uh, the governor, Roy Cooper, the Democratic governor, about the way he's implemented the COVID nineteen restrictions in your state. Talk a little bit about what motivated you and what what the suit really tries to achieve. Well, let me, you know, I'll just back up a little bit, John, and kind of start at the beginning, because what happened was, uh, well, North Carolina is a little different than a lot of states. We actually, our constitution says that the governor uh, needs to get concurrence or approval from the council of state before he does any of these broad sweeping emergency management orders, and uh, he has not done that. So what um, has happened through all these shutdown orders, he, he actually can't, he actually, uh, I think it was March 17th, he posted on social media that he was going to shut down all of our restaurants. Um, and then a few hours later, he came to the Council of State and asked for concurrence. Uh, my immediate response was, are you really asking me to concur on something you already announced you were going to do? Uh, and then my next question was, are you ready to shut down you know, uh, 10% of the economy tonight? Are you really ready to lay off 500,000 people uh, without warning uh, in a few hours? And that's what happened. So he came to the Council of State, asked for that approval. While we were going through that process through email, he went and had a press conference and announced he was going to do it. So it was illegal in my mind. We were hoping through a period of time that the Council of State would get back together and join together and, and join forces. Um, people didn't really have an appetite at the time. We were also hoping the legislature would do something about it. They tried passing bills, which got vetoed by the governor. And so we came to the last resort to say, listen, in times of emergency, it's more important than ever to uphold rule of law. Uh, and it's more important than ever to pay attention to your constitution. And so we really didn't believe we had any other choice but to sue over the constitutionality of uh, the decision. Now, these uh, restrictions have had you know, grave consequences beyond the economic impact immediately in the state. Um, uh, you had or were about to host in Charlotte the full Republican National Convention in August. And of course, because of Governor Cooper's unwillingness to work with the Trump campaign or to give some assurances that they could have the full convention, uh, the president moved some important aspects of the convention to uh, Florida. Describe what impact that's had, you know, both on the city of Charlotte, on the state of North Carolina, and, and on the economic well-being of, of the area. Well, obviously, when you uh, shut down the economy like has been done and you've done it for so long, uh, the hospitality industry is the one that gets hit the hardest. Uh, Charlotte was probably going to make 150 to 200 million dollars on this convention if it was a full convention in Charlotte. So the economic impact to the industry that got hit the hardest, where the most people are laid off, is where you're feeling the most uh, heat in our state. Right. And so to pull out and just say, no, sorry, you can't have the only thing you were going to get this year, you cannot have it, is devastating uh, to the hospitality industry in Charlotte. And, and as you know, that impacts lower wage workers and impacts families that are trying to make a living and uh, at the lowest uh, levels there. And, and so that's kind of sad in a lot of ways. Um, but it also has you know repercussions across uh, the state economically in a lot of other ways, too. And, and we've we've just seen as all other states have real economic devastation uh, across the state of North Carolina. And so we just believe that, um, you know, when you're going to make these decisions, they need to have a lifespan to them. We, I believe that the science and the data needs to line up with your decision. And we've got, uh, in North Carolina, we have not gotten a clear, transparent view of data. And we're not getting a full picture of what's really going on here. So while we are the ninth largest state in the country, uh, 10 and a half million people, uh, our death count for uh, coronavirus is down at 33rd 
in the nation. Our curve has never been anything but flat in North Carolina. Um, the majority of our counties have no problem whatsoever, and yet the governor continues to push these shutdowns inconsistently across the board, picking winners and losers, losers in certain industries. And it's uh, it's not right, and it's certainly unconstitutional. So regardless of the uh, you know subjectivity, if you will, of the decision, the reality is he's not following the rule of law. And that, that really becomes a big issue, uh, not only in the election, but I think for many Republicans who've looked at the way that states have implemented um, COVID-19 restrictions, everybody understands we're trying to protect public health. There's, there's no real gap between Republicans and Democrats and their desire to protect public health. But I think it's in the approach, which is Democrats seem to have, in many of their states, done a one-size-fits-all uh, sweeping restriction on a state when Republicans have argued that the data should dictate by locality or region, if there's no outbreak in a region, why punish that region with, with restrictions when there's no health threat? Yeah. Is that sort of divide and that argument, is that beginning to resonate in North Carolina as people tire of the of the long-term restrictions? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're not too dissimilar than other states. I mean, we're, you know, 85% of our state is rural, but majority of the population is in the cities, as, as you would uh, guess. And, you know, I think rural communities where, uh, especially those rural communities, by 50 to 60 of our 100 counties that have no outbreaks and really no case increases going on, they're going, hey, you know, we should be able to get back to life here. Our kids should be able to get back to school here. We should be getting things back to normal. Uh, the cities are obviously hunkered down more and there's, you know, more of the fear and panic campaign going on in the cities. But if you look at the data, holistically, I think there's two ways to look at this. The Democrat governors across the country are continuing to push fear, continuing to push panic, continuing to push the shutdowns. Uh, and the Republican governors saying, listen, we've got to learn to live with this virus the same way we've learned to live with other viruses. Let's be real clear about the data. We know who this virus impacts. It's older people with comorbidities. We know that now in North Carolina, over 60% of our deaths come from nursing homes that are controlled wow. by the state. Uh, so, you know, we know where the, where the attack is coming. Protect the old folks, protect the people that are vulnerable, allow everybody else to get back to their livelihood. And uh, that's obviously uh, important as, you know, when this shutdown started, John, you know, this, we were thinking, oh, a couple weeks, we'll just kind of be shut down for a couple weeks, we'll all take a hit. And that turned into a couple months and that turned into four months and uh, and then new regulation on top of new regulation. And you look at what California is doing, where you, where you say, oh, you can't sing in churches. You can protest all day long and yell and scream and sing and do all these things, but you can't sing in a church. I mean, these kind of inconsistencies are so un-American, uh, so unconstitutional in a lot of ways. But uh, I think people are starting to sense that. They're starting to feel it. And they're starting to actually get angry about it. And that's not good in America when your people start to get angry over this. Yeah, there's no doubt. I just took a, a brief swing through another important swing state, uh, Wisconsin, and uh, was, and, you know, it's a, it tends to lean a little blue, though it went for Trump the last time. And it's had Republican and Democratic governors back and forth. Yeah. But the sentiments, wherever I went, the frustration that there was a double standard between uh, the health lack of health restrictions on protesters and rioters and then the lack of uh, and the very strong restriction on churches and and other activities really struck people I, I was struck how many people just in a coffee shop conversation or walking down the street brought up that issue they really saw the disparity and were scratching their heads what's wrong with our leaders in america today um i suspect that 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 plays out in the fall now you're running for governor. Well, tell us a little bit just about how your campaign's going, what the numbers look like, what what the issues are that this election will turn on in North Carolina. Uh, well, the campaign's going great, uh, John. We run a grassroots campaign. We've built that grassroots organization over the last eight years. 
Uh, we do very well uh, across the state with grassroots. Uh, right now, the campaign is switching, obviously, to the mass media market and television. We went up on TV uh, yesterday, actually, and obviously the goal would be to stay on television all the way through November. Uh, the race is neck and neck. Uh, it's going to be neck and neck. It always is <laughs> for a governor's race in North Carolina. We were kind of a purple state, if you will, and right. so that's what it is. So it's going to come down to the wire, but I really believe that sentiment is changing. Uh, we've gone from this mode where everybody's like, hey, just keep us safe, keep us safe, keep us safe, to now where they're going, hey, let us get back to life, let us get back to life. And uh, so I think that's shifting uh, in our direction and in our favor. And uh, we just have to withstand the onslaught of $30 million on television uh, coming against you to make you look like uh, the devil. You know, and if we can do that, then um, then I think we have a great chance in, in November. So, uh, yeah, I think things are, are certainly moving in the right direction right now. When I when I talk to folks in both parties, uh, you're one of the more interesting Republicans uh, in the dynamic of the last few years, because in 2016, you substantially outperformed uh, the Republican running for governor who lost, uh, yet you won. So you split the ticket and you had a really strong get out the vote effort that I think a lot of people are looking for you to replicate. Talk about how in first, how did you pull off 2016 where you, you outperformed your own you know Republican colleague on the ticket? You I think you did as well, if not as better than President Trump. You did very well, in, you know, in the Republican get out the vote. What happened in 16 and what are you trying to replicate to win in 2020? Well, again, we have a strong base. So obviously you or, you know, people that you, 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 we have a strong base, you don't have to organize them. They, you know, they're going to come out in your favor. We, we do a great job of organizing the polls. We, we uh, outpaced our current governor, the winning governor, Democrat, by about 85,000 votes. We got more votes than the president. That's never happened from the lieutenant governor perspective. And I just attribute that to our, our base. And so we'll have a strong base coverage. You know, North Carolina's a big state. This is the first time we've ever really had to run in the city, so to speak, and, and to do a big media campaign. The money that's going to come against us from not just our governor, but outside sources. He raises a lot of money from New York, a lot of money from California, from Florida, from places outside the state that we just don't have the opportunity to do uh, as Republicans. Um, he, he's doing very well there, and he's, he's a prolific fundraiser. So we have to withstand that. It's a different race. It's not apples to apples when the lieutenant governor comparing that to a governor's race. We didn't have the heat against us. Uh, but we have to hold our own. And I feel strongly that our message, you know, I don't, I never nuance a message. I never say different things to different audiences. I am who I am. I allow people to choose whether they like that or not. <laughs> and and uh, I take a lot of hits for things I say like you do as well. But I just try to speak the truth. And I think just like President Trump is when he's speaking the truth to people, people are like, yeah, that's what I believe. That's, that's kind of what I think, too. It's, fine. it's nice to finally hear somebody say that and not try to be politically correct in all the responses. So I just think that message resonates with people, not just Republicans, but Democrats as well. We, we know that, you know, the vast majority of Democrats have been left behind by this leftist and now even Marxist ideology that's being pushed through our country. And so they need a home and they're going to have to find somebody reasonable to vote for that they can trust. Uh, again, to protect the rule of law and the, the you know, safety and security. You ask what issues it's going to come down to. In the end, I think law and order is going to be at the top of the list now. I never would have expected that. The economy, who thought uh, four months ago we'd be talking about the economy being at the top of the list for an election? And uh, now, you know, North Carolina, a million and a half people unemployed. All of a sudden, the economy is at the top of the list. So these things kind of change uh, daily, and uh, we just have to be flexible in how we address the, the, the pertinent issues of the day. 
Now, there's been a big uh, dispute. In fact, North Carolina stands out. I think it's the only state uh, right now where the governor and the legislature couldn't agree on a full budget for the, the 2020 fiscal year. Can you talk a little bit about how that dynamic uh, is affecting the race and you know what people think about the inability of the legislature and, and the governor to agree on something as simple as the economic blueprint for a state? Yeah, well, I mean, the governor, you know, for political reasons, has vetoed uh, every budget along the way. Um, you know, we've had, uh, we, for, for just for a simple analogy, every budget we have had has had teacher pay raises in it. The Republican legislature has done teacher pay increases for six years now. This would have been seven years. No other state in the country has done that. Uh, our governor runs on teacher pay, teacher pay, teacher pay. And he's vetoed every single teacher pay increase <laughs> that we've done. So, uh, you know, you put that in the political bucket, the, this last budget we had, we have, you know, not only on the budget, but we had a $900 million surplus going into the coronavirus. Um, and so it was a great budget. I mean, it was great for the whole state. It's the best budget I've seen as lieutenant governor. Uh, it did things that we weren't able to do before because we had good surpluses year over year as Republicans were in control. And he's been vetoing. He vetoed a really great budget, which I think made a lot of people across the state very angry. Um, because we are finally going to get to do some things that we haven't been able to do in a while. And uh, so I, I think it comes back to, to bite him in the long term, is that it was a good budget and he decided for political purposes not to pass it. And when you look at the national uh, issues that are playing out in Carolina, where, where President Trump obviously will be competing against Joe Biden, uh, you know the polls have shown both Cooper and Biden up a little bit right now. But what what issues do you think – um, are resonating and what issues will change when people really focus on the election come post Labor Day? Uh, well, I think, you know, given all the turmoil in America, I think uh, security, uh, security is a lot of fronts right now, right? I mean, I get law and order security. Right. I think as we go into the school year, there's education security uh, for a lot of parents out there that want to have some certainty about what's going to be going on with their kids' education, job security. Uh, you know, all these kinds of things that I think security be at top of the list. I think the economy is obviously going to be at top of the list. Uh, healthcare is always up there uh, for people. And so, uh, you know, I think it's this kind of the standard issues, but they're on, a bit on steroids right now. And, and then what you have from the national platform is you have people pushing a bunch of false narratives. You know, I put my TV commercial out yesterday, and the first thing I get hit by, uh, by the Democrat Party and the governor is calling me a racist. I'm like, yeah, they could never find a thing, a single thing I've done or said that's racist, but their response to me putting a commercial out, which is a pretty generic commercial, name recognition commercial, is to start calling me a racist, which is the same thing they do with President Trump. I mean, the Democrat Party now, this leftist Democrat Party, their platform is all about identity politics, which is the basis of cultural Marxism, divide and conquer, make everybody a victim, uh, and then blame somebody for your victimhood, which they've been doing to the president, obviously, for four years. Uh, but that that will be their plan here, too. So uh, this, these are the things you have to put up with and you have to deal with because this is what the media, the narrative the media pushes. Uh, so you don't always get to stay on offense uh, when the media is pushing these kinds of things. But that's certainly your hope. So, you know, those are the kind of, you know, again, you, you deal with it every day now. You deal with this kind of Marxist revolution that we're seeing, cultural revolution. Uh, and uh, those are the issues that end up being front and center on the newspapers and the headlines and the news. Yeah, there's no doubt. And I want to talk about that shift, because I think a lot of people heading into the 2020 election, if you wound back to January before COVID-19 was really at the top of our agenda, everybody, I think, suspected that this election would turn on on the uh, economy, the strong economy that the Trump administration had created. 
Uh, and then, you know, the, the popularity difference in the styles of a, of a, of a Joe Biden Democrat and, and a Donald Trump, who, you know, can be a little acerbic and aggressive in his response. But it's really pivoted over the, you know, as a result of COVID-19 and then the uh, George Floyd uh, murder and, and uh, the outbreak and uh, the uh, violence. Do you think now that this election has pivoted to a, uh, a choice between a Marxist America and a America that we all have come to know free and uh, with liberty and democracy? Is that what this election is going to boil down to in the fall, at least as Republicans are concerned? I don't know, because I don't know if people fully understand the implications of what's going on. <clears throat> I think there's a, certainly a narrative being pushed that the, the violence and the things that are going on with tearing down statues is a response to the George Floyd killing. You and I both know that's not the case. People look for cracks and they look for opportunities to take advantage and, and create havoc so that they can start to you know, tear down your institution. Right. And I don't know that people, as many people, just the standard voters out there pay attention enough to get it at that level. So I don't know that it really comes down to that. Um, you know, from my perspective, um, people need hope right now, John. I mean, they need hope coming out of this. What, what uh, it's kind of Ronald Reagan, you know, uh, a morning in America again, and, right. uh, the kind of, uh, uh, hope you get from a statement like that, or hope you get from leadership like Reagan. That's what we need in America right now. I mean, we have divisiveness like we haven't seen in a lot of years in our country. And uh, we need leaders that are going to pull people together and talk about unity, talk about bringing together under an American ideal, under an American ideal, not under a communist Marxist ideal. So I think we have right. to be able to share that message in a way that resonates with the people. Now, when I look back through some of the data in the 2016 election, one of the areas where you did extremely well and uh, also President Trump did extremely well was in the get out the vote efforts, particularly with evangelical voters that tend to vote Republican. Uh, what's going on in the state this year to ensure that happens is replicated or even grown uh, as uh, uh, the the challenges you know go forward for the fall election? Are are you uh, focused on an evangelical voter outreach, and uh, how important is that constituency to your your success? Oh, it's incredibly important. I mean, uh, you know as well as I do, um, the statistics are very clear. When the evangelical church shows up to vote, uh, as they did in the last Trump election, as they did in the Reagan election, uh, it's very difficult for conservatives to lose. Uh, when they don't show up to vote, it's very, very difficult for us to win. So I think a lot, a lot of things hinge on the church, uh, the evangelical church showing up. So, yes, we, we're uh, obviously doing outreach there. My message, uh, my worldview, my Christian worldview aligns uh, there. I speak in a lot of churches. I speak to a lot of church groups now. We obviously do a lot of Zoom things and, and videos right. and that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, we're, we're having, obviously, a get-out-the-boat effort. But it is interesting. It's an interesting dynamic, John, where churches are shut down uh, still. Even the churches that are open back up, their you know their attendance is very low. Right. It's very difficult to tell what the dynamic's going to be when voting time comes around and how people are going to respond to what's going on. My hope is that the church does see and the pastors are very clearly uh, sharing the message that the government, again, has overstepped its constitutional bounds in the First Amendment, freedom of religion, where they stepped in and started to regulate uh, things. Not that, you know, not that you don't do certain things in case of emergency, but at some certain point, you can't keep churches shut down. Like Gavin Newsom, you can't tell people you can't sing in church. I mean, that's, yeah. just, that's just ludicrous. So uh, when those kinds of things happen, um, I, I hope that it awakens a body of believers in the church who say, we, you know, elections have consequences, and this is our opportunity to do something about it. 
we we at the just the news has had have several polls that have uh, validated this that the uh, enthusiasm gap is significant that Republican supporters of President Trump and of Republican candidates are far more enthusiastic about their candidates than Democrats are about Joe Biden and their slate. Uh, how important? Uh, first, are you seeing an enthusiasm gap in your state? Are Republicans more excited about Trump than uh, than Biden? And how can that play out over the course of the next four or five months when it gets to get out the vote and, and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, from Trump's perspective, uh, you know, my hope is that they get on message, they get on offense, they do the things that they do well, like the Super Bowl commercial uh, that the president did. Uh, you know, that resonated with people and, and it kind yeah. of shocked them a little bit. And I hope that they get on that message and, and not not uh, get on defense. Uh, so that would be the hope there. But the president resonates very well here. I mean, you you can see it on every weekend. There's three or four boat parades out there, Trump boat parades with hundreds and hundreds of boats in them, if not thousands. I think the enthusiasm is very high, certainly with the base uh, for Trump, with the base for me. Uh, I don't see a lot of enthusiasm for our governor. I don't see a lot of enthusiasm for Biden. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're not a 50-50 state and people still kind of vote their party lines a lot of times. So I think it comes down to the wire. But yeah, I mean, what what causes people to stay home, John? And uh, sometimes that's a lack of enthusiasm for their candidate. Uh, but, you know, a hatred for the other candidate can also get them out. Yeah. Too. That's so a big motivator, too. Job. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, the people who don't like President Trump really don't seem to like him on the left. There's no doubt about that. Uh, best advice I, I think I've detected from you in talking about what Trump can do to win North Carolina, win the country, is to get back on that positive economic, we're building a great America that the Democrats could never build. Is that is that your hope that he that, that becomes his message going into the fall and we, we get away from some of this other stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, who are the forces coming against him right now? It's the, it's the Barack Obamas and Eric Holders and the Hillary Clintons, the people that were saying, oh, this economy's never going to grow as fast as Trump says it's going to grow. It, the best it can do is X, you know, and then Trump blows that out of the water. Uh, to tell people what he did before, remind them, you know, not that people want to look back to the past, but remind them where we were. Uh, what the recession was like that we came out of and what was done in a few short years under the Trump administration, not just here in America, but uh, you know, rebuilding uh, trade deals around the world, not popular, but even people in our country don't think that's popular. A lot of economists don't, don't think that's popular, but he's trying to create right. a level uh, fair playing field, not just free trade, but fair trade. And, and I think that resonates with the average American out there. Go ahead and tell the story of all the great things you're doing. You know, he's been significantly more pro-life than, um, than, really any other president we've ever had in modern times. So uh, go ahead and tell these stories and let it resonate with the people. Yeah, that's a great point. And there's a lot of talk in the media about suburban women and the challenge that Republicans have with them. Do you see such a challenge? And, and if not, what what is the key for Republicans communicating to that you know very important block of voters? Oh, well, it's, yeah, it's a challenge every year. You know, the, the suburban women are uh, just always kind of that. When you talk about the swing voter, I don't think there's a lot of swing voters based on party. I think there's a lot of swing voters, especially with, with uh, suburban women, based on what the issues of the day are. Uh, a right. lot of times they're, you know, you know uh, education. Now I really believe it's safety and security. I think, the, you know, I think our message is going to resonate with suburban women on safety and security. Again, whether that's education safety, economic safety, healthcare safety, all those things. But uh, I think our message is the one that resonates with them in the security message. I think we will see a, um, a larger group of suburban women swing our way because of the lawlessness we've seen going on in, uh, with the left across the country. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. We've heard similar things from other pollsters who've been measuring it over the last uh, month and, and are seeing some sort of a change there. And it was consistent with what I heard in, in uh, Wisconsin a lot, uh, just people uh, upset by the just sort of the lawless reaction and sort of the double standard that they saw between churches and protesters. So it's going to be interesting to see that play out. Uh, well, Lieutenant Governor, this is a race we're going to be watching. I hope we can get you back on the show. You're, you're obviously one of the most important races in the in the country that people will be watching. So we'll be following and hoping that maybe to get you back on and ask you some more questions as fall uh, as fall approaches. Well, I am available anytime you have me on, John. I'll be there for you. So thank you uh, for this opportunity to talk to America today. Thanks for what you do and uh, sharing the message, sharing truth and uh, doing your job to help us win this battle. Well, thank you, sir. And uh, we appreciate all the, all the time you spent with us today. All right, folks, that wraps it up with Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest of North Carolina. We'll be right back after the commercial break. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back. And I'm telling you, folks, I don't know where the time goes. It feels like we just got started talking about the polls and talking about Dan Forrest and the latest developments on Christopher Steele and the John Durham investigation. And poof, the podcast is almost ready to end. I wish we had more time and we will. Now, there's a rumor floating around Washington today that Steve Bannon might be joining me for an interview later today or tomorrow. If that happens, we're going to break out a special edition of um, John Solomon Reports, the Just the News podcast. So check out tomorrow. We may have a special edition, Steve Bannon talking about all things China, all things Russia. And as you know, he has some pretty strong feelings about how Donald Trump should go about winning re-election in the fall. Uh, if we get that moment, if we have that chance, we're not going to save it to next Tuesday. We're going to break it out fast. You can buckle your seatbelt, put your crash helmet on, and get ready for a great uh, interview with Steve Bannon. We'll let you know. Just keep an eye on the podcast tab and on the Adjust the News site. And uh, if Steve Bannon shows up, if we can connect with him as we hope. He's a busy guy, but if it happens, we're going to be excited. Um, we can then uh, break out a special edition of John Solomon Reports. Until the next time we talk, be safe. I hope you check out justthenews.com uh, often. we got a lot of great breaking news, great team, great reporters. Christine O'Donnell, Kerry Sheffield, uh, Nick Ballasey, who's done some great work looking at all of the members and creatures of the swamp who have gotten uh, loans under the COVID-19, forgivable loans. They're cashing in on, on this government welfare program. Um, go check out the site often. Great reporters, great names. Cheryl Atkinson, I can go on. I'm so proud of the colleagues I get to surround myself and work with every day. So check out Just the News. And remember, my book, Fallout, comes out next week with Seamus Bruner. Uh, you can get an early copy and get an autograph. And more importantly, you can get a private session, uh, an opportunity to question me and Seamus about all things Russia, Ukraine, Biden, China, you name it. Uh, this is a special offer only for Just the News uh, fans. So check that out at jtnshop.com like we talked about. 
We'll get together soon, hopefully as early as tomorrow, with the Steve Bannon interview, if that happens. Uh, If not, we'll be back with you next week. Have a great time, and thanks again for listening. You've been listening to John Solomon Reports, the podcast from justthenews.com. Justthenews.com.